Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Moods and Modes is presented in partnership with Osiris Media and made possible by members of our Patreon community. To support the podcast directly, go to patreon.com slash Alex Skolnick. From Brooklyn, New York, this is Moods and Modes. I'm your host, Alex Skolnick. I'm perhaps best known as a guitar player. I'm also a writer, photographer, music educator, authenticity appreciator, and somebody who occasionally gets told to shut up and play my guitar. This podcast will largely focus on music and the human stories behind the sounds that make life so meaningful. And it may take us to some unexpected territory as well. So thank you for joining me. And now it's time for some moods and modes. But I remember with Billy Gibbons, and, and he just played like three notes. And Joe and I just looked at each other and went, what was... They, they sounded like they had their own zip code, you know? Amazing. Those were sevens? Oh, my God. <laughs> Are you using the same uh, gauges you've always used? I'm using sixes, actually. <laughs> I had a, no, I'm going to start using fives. Because... Uh, well, Billy used seven, so I thought we wanted to talk about Moods and Modes, episode 47. This is Alex, and what you're just hearing is from the back half of this episode, a fun moment. And yes, we usually kick off with music, but we have three distinct musicians on. So rather than bombard you with several different clips, I wanted to share a little bit of the conversation. And it is a great conversation indeed. And the topic at that moment was string gauge sizes, as some of you may have figured out. And we're having a moment kind of like spinal tap, you know, this amp goes one louder and we're talking <laughs> how low can the string gauges go? Anyway, it'll make more sense in context. First, happy new year. What a way to kick off the year, by the way. Uh, one thing that happens early in the year is the Super Bowl. And this feels like the Super Bowl of podcast episodes. You could also compare it to the Avengers of guitar, just an all-star lineup. Now, if you're listening, I assume you have seen the episode description or the artwork. But just in case you were listening to another podcast and this came up automatically and you don't know who I'm talking about, we have Steve Vai, Joe Santriani, and Eric Johnson, all of them here together. What are they doing here? Well, Eric's been here before. Joe and Steve are on the list. I'm sure they would have been here eventually. I'm sure they still will at some point on their own. But the reason we get all of them at once is because they are doing a G3 reunion tour. The OG G3, if you will. Guys, you're welcome to use that if you're listening. You're welcome. Now, I imagine I don't need to explain to listeners of this podcast too much about who these guys are. They are giants of the electric guitar, not the New York giants, to go back to my Super Bowl analogy, 
although two of them are from Long Island, New York. That would be Joe Satriani and Steve Vai. And uh, one of them is from Austin, Texas. That's Eric Johnson. This trio comprises three of the most important names of electric guitar for the past several decades. If you think of household names in guitar, chances are it's somebody associated with a popular group and or it is a singer slash guitarist, but not somebody who specializes in instrumental music. In fact, with the passing of Jeff Beck, there is nobody bigger in instrumental guitar music than these three. So for that reason, I'm not going to go into as much detail as I normally would up front. If you need to know more about these guys, there's plenty of information online, whether Wikipedia, YouTube, Apple Music, etc. But if you're a guitar enthusiast and you're unaware of them, you've been living under a rock. <laughs> now, if you're not as familiar with the term G3, that's a bit more understandable. G3 is the three guitar package tour that Joe Satriani has been doing himself and two other highly prominent guitar players for nearly three decades now, which is hard to believe. So Joe has been putting these G3 tours together in between his solo tours every few years or so. More often than not, one of the other guitar players is Steve Vai, but that's not always the case. A few years ago, I had the honor of sitting in with the G3 tour, and the other guitar players were John Petrucci of Dream Theater and Phil Colin of Def Leppard, moonlighting from the regular gigs. It was so much fun. And over the years, there's been quite the variety in the billing of the G3. It has included the Shred King of Sweden himself, Ingve Malmsteen, former Scorpions members Michael Schenker and Uli John Roth, Michael Schenker also of UFO, and even King Crimson's Robert Fripp. But it all began with this lineup, Satriani, Vi, and Johnson. So this is something that comes up in conversation, but is worth emphasizing that when these three first got together to tour in the mid-90s, it was following major changes in the world of music. The tastemakers, a good portion of the general public, and particularly the music industry, had suddenly developed this hostility towards guitar virtuosity, seemingly overnight. The landscape was nothing like it was a few years before. In the late 80s, you could hear all three of these guys, often on mainstream radio. The national magazine coverage was constant. Not just the guitar magazines, either. MTV would play their videos. Steve I was coming off of stints with David Lee Roth and Whitesnake, playing sold-out arenas every night. In fact, I remember predictions that Steve would be the first artist to headline arenas playing instrumental rock guitar. It almost happened, too. But then... I think most of you probably know what I'm getting at here. So when you think back to that time period when the G3 first began and compare it to the musical landscape a mere few years earlier... It makes you appreciate the humility it must have taken for these three to get together, not see each other as competitors. Not that they ever did, but after all, they'd all staked out some pretty serious territory and decide to work not as competitors, but colleagues joining forces for the sake of music and the guitar. Now, Joe talks about his motivations. They were purely positive. He wanted to hang out with friends and have a good time playing music. But for many of us in the audience, we saw it as our defense. Guys sticking up for the notion of great guitar solos and electric guitar virtuosity. 
All of which is to say there is a lot of meaning behind these three getting together and touring as the G3 reunion. Now, it's a limited run from January 23rd through February 10th. It's mostly on the West Coast. It doesn't go further east than Vegas and Arizona. So if you're in those areas and you have a chance to catch this show, by all means, do it. There's a really cool VIP package, too, which has a Q&A with the guys and a group photo and lots of other goodies. VIP packages and tickets are available at g3tour.com. So just a couple final thoughts before I bring in the gents. I greatly enjoyed this conversation, and I'm so thankful to them for coming on and giving me so much time, as is often the case. Just as you're about to wrap up, everybody's loose, and that's often when some of the best content happens. So they stuck around. We went to some really interesting places, and because it went long, we're not going to do the break that we often do in the middle of an episode. We're just going to go straight through. And uh, one final thought, which I, I mentioned to them towards the end of the conversation, uh, when I was growing up, many of the players that I'd looked forward to seeing once I became old enough to attend concerts on my own no longer sounded like they used to. There was a sense of missing out, and I was envious of people who had seen these players, whether it was in the 60s or 70s or early 80s. Now, you don't have to use your imagination to think of who these might be. I didn't want to mention any names. I actually did mention some names in conversation, and I, I cut them out. But the exception was Jeff Beck. So whether you'd seen Jeff Beck in the 2000s or the 1970s, you had seen Jeff Beck. And all three of these guys, you can catch them today, and it's just as good as catching them when they first came out. And I'm so grateful for them and I'm so happy to have them on the Moods and Modes podcast. So without further ado, let's welcome to Moods and Modes, Joe Satriani. Steve Vai. Eric Johnson. The G3 Reunion. We totally appreciate you guys doing this. Uh, this podcast was my pandemic project, and uh, just it's it's been a, a really fun hobby. And um, I've talked to everyone from uh, Peter Frampton before I met him at G4, uh, Joe, and Eric and I have done a thing and I wanted to get uh, you guys on. And then it turns out you, you're, you're planning a G3 reunion and yeah. um, you were all sent to me. Um, <laughs> thank you, Melissa. And it's great to have you here. Thank you. So nice to be here. You're doing great stuff, Alex. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much, Steve. Um, I, I've seen all of you recently, but I'm really looking forward to this this G3. Now, um, Joe, I was just talking to your son, ZZ, coolest name for a kid ever. Um, <laughs> although Fire Island is pretty cool, too. <laughs> and th there's going to be a Joe Doc coming out. 
Is it a G3 doc or a Joe doc? What is it? It's almost more like a ZZ doc, really. It's, <laughs> it's uh, and it's kind of like about all of us, really, and him uh, growing up uh, around G3, having this strange person as his father, uh, and his life uh, growing up around guitar music and all these guitar players. You guys, as, as you know, he was a little kid running around when we were doing all of our tours. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's blossomed into uh, uh, something really big. And, and uh, thanks to all of you for joining in, because it's really been great to have everybody's input and different perspective about what it means to be a guitar player and how it, it changes and is a huge force in our lives. Yeah, one of the things Zizi and I talked about was the fact that you guys first put this together in the mid-90s. And the state of lead guitar in the mid-90s was interesting, right? There was yeah. a huge difference between, say, the late, late 80s and early 90s and the mid-90s. And, uh, you know, we're talking about the era of Green Day, pavement, meat puppets, breeders, uh, <laughs> Nirvana, of course, and uh, guitar solos, and especially guitar solos with technical skills, were not prioritized anymore. And then you guys come along and you do this tour where, you know, it's just all about the guitar and the possibilities on guitar. I think it really reawakened of uh, the public in a way. And in, in a way, it, it was kind of, there's something punk rock about it, doing a shred tour <laughs> at that time. Um, so maybe why don't each of you express some thoughts on, on that and when the tour started and so forth. Um, well, I can tell you that um, the story that I've told uh, many times about the innocent way that it got started is really true. I, I walked into the Bill Graham uh, management offices with, uh, you know, letting them know how grateful I was that I had this great career and I could play my music around the world and we were touring. But my main complaint was I was always isolated somehow. Me on the stage with a guitar, I'd be in Paris, uh, you know, Eric would be in New York, Steve would be in Australia all my other guitar player friends were somewhere else and I'd get home and everyone was either like not thinking about getting together to play guitar or they were off on another <laughs> tour somewhere. And I thought, well, you know, when do we get to hang out? That's, that was my high school dream is that when I grow up and I'm a famous guitar player, it'll just be parties with all your guitar playing friends and you'll be hanging out and playing guitar and having a good time. And that's not what happened. <laughs> it, was, it was like work, you know? And so I thought, well, I should do something about it. So what can we do about it? That was the question that I put uh, to Mick and, and Arnie and Morty and everybody there, uh, which is what are we going to do about it? So we started with some crazy plans, like because Lollapalooza was just getting off the ground around that time. I was going to ask if those types of festivals had any inspiration for they did. I, mean, I grew up in a time when the whole festival thing was getting started uh, as, as rock music started to go from counterculture to mainstream. And uh, so it, it it seemed natural for me to have some kind of a festival. I just thought that no one, I, well, I, what I realized is no one's going to do it unless I try to do it. And uh, 
So that was the idea. How, how many guitar players can we get to, to go on a tour? One show is one thing, but we didn't really have a reason for that. Um, and there weren't enough bands at the time practicing the kind of shows we were doing. Very few uh, guitar solo artists uh, like Steve and Eric and my, myself. So um, we went from, you know, seven or eight players and we realized that the sets would be so short that it wouldn't be attractive for any guitar player to want to join the tour. That it would make sense if we could say, if you come on the tour, you can probably play your hits and your new stuff and you'll have plenty of time to relax and warm up and feel like you've played your set for your fans in the audience. And the other thing was, how can we fit it into the curfew structure of a theater uh, or an outdoor venue? We did some uh, sheds at the time. So that, that was the other thing was, how do we squeeze it into that? You know, doors open at seven, everyone's got to be loaded out at 11 kind of thing. And so that's why we came down to G3. It was the three guys that made sense. And it was actually Mick Brigden who came up with the phrase G3. We had a couple of different ideas running around, uh, but that was by far the best. And I should point out just we had to go to court to get the right to use G3 because Why? <laughs> Apple computers. Uh, oh, of course. And there was a magnetic weapons company that made uh, like a modern machine gun that was called G3. And so <laughs> the court decided we could use G3 for concerts only, but we couldn't make automatic weapons or computers. Which <laughs> Rats. <laughs> which is fine with me. <laughs> Although we were planning on that at the merch table. You know, <laughs> the opportunities. Yeah, they, they, they write themselves. go on it. Yeah. And, and then Apple couldn't do concerts, calling them G3 and, and so on and so forth. So. Anyway, that, that's my long answer <laughs> to how that thing got started. So that's after that, when we realized that it was possible, uh, that's when I made those phone calls to Steve and Eric because they were the two guys that I, I was fixated on. I said, it has to be these guys. It can't be anybody else. These are the only guys who are going to be able to get this show on the road. And these are the guys I'm listening to. These are the guys who are innovating and bringing everything from their past right to the present. Yeah, that was my next question. Was it an obvious choice? I mean, I know you and Steve go way back to the Long Island days. Yes, yeah. No, it was, for me, it was obvious. Yeah. Uh, and and um, I mean, they were, uh, in my mind, they were both uh, superstars that had uh, not only come from playing with other people, but um, had their own identity in their solo work. And I think that was the most important thing is yeah, that yeah. it's not just picking the lead guitar player from that famous band and so on and so forth. That didn't really make sense to me because I knew that ultimately we were going to stand next to each other every night and we were going to have to improvise and it wasn't going to work if some guy was going to show up and just do what he does in that other band, you know, <laughs> that he's, that he's stepping out of. Uh, each artist has to come with a lot of stuff and, and, it's got to be natural, you know. They have to just have it right there at their fingertips. No pun intended, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I thought it was interesting because you and Steve, you know, you're both sort of the post Van Halen guys, uh, especially you, Steve, because you really 
you played for David Lee Ross and his post Van Halen rock band. So, but totally did your own thing, but that you kind of can't get much more post Van Halen than that. Yeah. Van Halen was touring. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And it's me. I'm just jumping in for one moment. The audio got a little warbly right there. Uh, what Steve I said was yes. And Van Halen was still touring. And you guys similarly had custom instruments that were your creations in collaboration with Ibanez. That was this booming company at the time. And uh, the equipment you used and the tones you got, it just seemed to take a step from where Van Halen was. It just became even more modern and especially, uh, you know, saturated. But, but Eric, meanwhile, you your gear and your sound, it always seemed like you're the guy. You go to the vintage shop in Austin and, uh, you know, you could break, get an old Fender and an old Strat. And somehow you managed to be totally modern and fit in with these guys, even though you're using like gear that's the, the complete opposite. And it's just a, such a radically different approach. Um, what did you have any thoughts about that? And just, you know, where you were coming from versus where Steve and Joe were coming from? Because you, you're obviously very different than this, the Vi Satriani sound. Yeah, it's just it's just all it's just like different colors of the rainbow and and um you know it's it's funny when people say, Oh, you know, this guy, he's he's the best. It's like how can you even you can't really say somebody's you know, like all the players on YouTube. I mean, everybody's got something and you can learn from everybody and, and um it's really you just get way past that to where it's just about people playing and and uh and i think with the good you know the, the equipment can be different but at some point you just turn it up and you just play those six strings you know and it's that there's a universality to it regardless of what gear you use and and three-fourths of it if not more comes from the the player's intention and the heart and the fingertips you know it's really not about it's taken me a long time <laughs> to learn it's not about the gear it's like forget the gear you know it's like the more you can get past that and like close that and not think about it you know it gets back to like you were as a kid and, and when you're a kid you just play for the joy of it and i think i think that's the the the, the really quintessential takeaway of the g3 thing that joe started is just it's just the joy of playing. It's that innocent joy of like when we were kids and we, we it was G3 when we got together as kids and two or three guys got together, oh, let's play. What do you got? And I got that. And you're learning from each other. It's, and it's just about the fun of playing and, you know, getting out there and just, you know, if you want to say shredding or, or comping or, or improvising or playing rhythm or playing lead, but it, it's just, it's the same thing you do with that, that initial joy of just playing guitar. And I think that that's, one of the timeless things about maybe what the G3 thing is, it's, it's more than just coming out and just, you know, going nuts. It's, it's about just, just showing up and playing for the joy of it. Like, like getting back to what we did as kids. Yeah, that makes sense. Make, um, I know as part of the Van Halen generation, you know, when uh, Steve and Joe came out, it was like the sort of next level tapping and, uh, you know, you're obviously your own sound and your own ideas, but there was there was the influence there. Like we can't imagine that type of tapping without Edward. Mm -hmm. uh, but but Eric, I, I feel like you managed to show there's there's possibilities even if you don't touch the fretboard with your right hand. In fact, have you ever done a 
a right hand tap. <laughs> I, I, I can't well, picture it. <laughs> yeah. It's a treat for me to watch Steve and Joe play because there's a lot of stuff that I can take note of, you know, it's, it's a lot of different vistas that, that I'm not that, you know, well versed in. So it's, it's like, it's like, you know, you constantly can be going to a, you know, learning experience and stuff and it runs the gamut, you know, like the stuff that these guys do. I mean, and, um, or, you know, or some player that's just, uh, comping chords, you know, behind, uh, you know, uh, Nat King Cole or something. It's always a marvel to it, you know, and and um, it keeps it keeps it really beautiful. Yeah, and you can get inspired by it without having to copy. Oh yeah, I've yeah. been talking about this recently. One of my first lessons with with Joe, uh, I was obsessed with Ingve because Ingve was the new guy on the scene, and Joe wasn't really known outside of uh, Berkeley, California, at that point. And he said, you know, there's always going to be this new guy. Everybody's going to try to be playing like the new guy. Don't try to sound too much like him. And, of course, Joe would be that new guy. And, uh, Steve, you were the, the new guy as well. And I recall a recent uh, chat on online, you and Dimiola, and you admitted you actually tried to pick like him. You were... You tried to do the Dimmy old and it wasn't working. And that was kind of how you discovered your, your own thing. And I thought that was so interesting because you've learned to be inspired by him without trying to play like him. And like, you know, and who, who can't like Edward or any of you guys, you know, you can't sound too much like one person. Yeah. Well, I think that that's how uh, it, it's pretty normal uh, when you're young and you're learning to be inspired by, uh, another player and to see them and to want to somehow grab the soul of what they're doing and have it for yourself, you know? And I remember the first, uh, for me was like Jimmy page, you know, I just so, um, overwhelmed by the energy and this, the coolness. So you want to, what are they doing? You know? And, and that happened for me and probably most guitar players every other month, you know, or whatever. Uh, so Al was part of that because when I discovered him, there was things about his technique that uh, were just uh, beautiful to me. And But I was listening to Jeff Beck, which, I mean, they're worlds apart, you know, and then Alan Holdsworth <clears throat> and all the rock uh, guitar players, Brian May. I mean, when you think about what each one of these guys offers, it kind of harkens on what Joe was saying, uh, which he's been very successful at with G3 in finding those artists that uh, their DNA, their, their, their voice comes through. They're, they have their own designs on the kind of music. It's just an attraction, you know, that, and, and it's when it's uh, an authentic attraction, it's almost, uh, it, it happens unconsciously. You just find yourself playing those things, picking those notes that you just love. And all of the, guitar players that we were inspired by all had that unique offering and you know we pick and we we get in, we, we, we incorporate certain things but you're if you're compelled to just have your kind of unique voice come through it just does and uh that, that for me it was collecting samples but that's a good way to look at it. But yeah. naturally, uh, the voice came through. <clears throat> and that happens, I think, 
organically with the way guys like us uh, navigate to the tone of the instrument. You know, the, the very touch. I mean, that's what you had mentioned. Eric's tone is uh, is so undeniable. Right. And so different. As it goes and, you know, there's elements of any guitar player. The, the more um, identifiable the tone, the notes, the phrasing, I think that means the more... Uh, uh, authentic, the voice comes through, you know? So yeah, all those great artists that we had the opportunity to grow up with, to learn from was um, vital. But the, at some point, something in, in us just goes, yeah, but I want to, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm going to go for this note. And I could, I could distinctly remember sitting in my, you know, teenage bedroom practicing all my Jimmy Page riffs and uh, <clears throat> just going, okay, this is great, but do I really want to play this in, you know, uh, in the songs I write or, or oop, what was that? You know, and then you look for something and it, 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 it goes, come to me, come to me. And it's a weird, quirky kind of a thing. And because uh, when you're young, you have no expectations sometimes of the future. You don't think, well, if I don't do that, you know, unless I do what they're doing, uh, I, uh, I'm not going to be able to rise to that occasion. You just go, hmm, I like this. And then it just kind of flowers into something. But yeah, the, the, uh, I want to just hand it to uh, Joe for taking, having the incentive to start this whole G3 thing. And I remember when he called and, uh, I remember, you know, I remember I said, well, let me think about it. Yes. <laughs> you know? And when that happened, I would love to say that I was just filled with, you know, joy and enthusiasm, but the, the ego was in the background, you know, and, and it, what it was saying was basically, are you going to be able to keep up with these guys? I mean, these are the guys, you know, like what, you know, okay, where are you going to stand? Are you going to be too loud? You know, <laughs> I mean, that wasn't the predominant uh, thought, but yeah, it was- It's unavoidable though. We, there. All, we all have those thoughts. Yeah, it kind of dilutes, for me at least, it 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 can dilute the, um, the exuberant uh, idea of the big picture, you know? So I remember distinctly, it wasn't until- we played the first show in Concord, right? Is that yeah. right? Concord Pavilion, yeah. And yeah, as you had mentioned, I had come from these big rock bands. We were selling out arenas, and it was right. you know all this big stuff. And then I was David Roth, White Snake, at yeah. its peak, yeah, yeah. And then I was trying to you know navigate a solo career, and you know how many tickets can we sell in this theater or, or you know club or whatever. So, you know, this was uh, my, my uh, trying to find my footing as a solo artist. And then the call came in and then, you know, there was the excitement, but then the, you know, okay, you, you better deliver by, you know, you, you can be standing next to giants, you know, and, and, uh, but when that first show came and we hit the stage and we started jamming together, I, I remember thinking, all right, this, yeah, yeah, okay. This is good, but it it really hit me after the first show, and I looked out, and the audience, it, and it was a large audience. That Concord show was big, and I was, I thought, oh, it's like it used to be, 
<laughs> you know, but then it really dawned on me what uh, an absolute um, uh, honored, the, the, a privilege it was to be in that environment and and be a part of it, and to and that all that kind of you know the, the little bit of fear there it dissolved. Yeah, I I was at that show. Believe it or not. Oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, before I moved to the East Coast, that was one of the last shows I went to. And there wasn't a sense of competition at all. Yeah. And uh, speaking of Demiola, you know, I, I love the Guitar Trio album with McLaughlin yeah. and Paco de Lucia. But I have to admit, there's a couple moments on there where it's just that you can tell there's, there is competition. And <laughs> they talk about it in interviews. I mean, they those guys you know we're not shy about it um <laughs> and th those but it, it, i felt like the g3 didn't have any of that energy at all like it was just yeah purely guitar comrades in arms yeah i would agree yeah yeah i mean everybody wants to shine everybody wants to do their best uh, i know for me i i just wanted to make sure i could contribute and and appropriately and uh but when you're there and you're actually the riffs are trading, you're not, you know, you're just the, the competition turns more into a competition against yourself. With yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Like how, how much more Steve Vai can I be? Because that's really Satriani or that's really Eric. I mean, that he's not going to try to play, you know, uh, copy me or something. You know, the, these guys are so independent voices so that really the confidence in each person's independent voice uh, put me totally at ease because there's just no competition you can't you can only say to yourself you better be the best that you can be and what's your strength exaggerate it you know exaggerate your strengths <laughs> I, I felt the same thing just uh, my brief g3 onstage experience in New Jersey with uh, Joe and uh, Petrucci. And uh, that was an example. You know, I'm not going to outpick these guys. I'm not going to out legato these guys, <laughs> you know. I thought uh, you did. <laughs> well, I, I remember, I just remember thinking, okay, what's, yeah, what's the opposite? Like, uh, you, go, you know, they do that. You go this way, I'm going to go this way. I, you know, I remember uh, thinking, how great it was. That was, I think, the loudest that I ever heard you, Alex. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. I thought, oh, finally, you know, because usually, you know, uh, watching a concert, you mixed in with a band and stuff like that. And uh, but when you're on stage, as you know, you very often you're if you're near someone's amp, you're really hearing a whole lot of their world, you know. And uh, and that was great to, to hear you just totally rip. Uh, with us finally after decades of knowing you as an incredible guitar player uh, to watch you take over like that. That was really great. So thank you. I know I, th I thanked you then, but thank you again. Oh, yeah. Thanks for, <laughs> for that. Experience. That was great. That was a crazy yeah. night. That, didn't we? Uh, we had Glenn, uh, Glenn Hughes was also yeah, a special Hughes. guest. Yeah, that was great. And you've had a lot of uh, interesting lineups since the original G3. I, I believe Ingve yes. uh, was part of it at one point. Oh yeah, uh, Robert Fripp, which I think is a really interesting choice. <laughs> and this is me jumping in again. I just want to clarify my choice of words right there. 
when I say that Robert Fripp as part of the G3 is a really interesting choice. I mean that in all earnestness. Robert Fripp, of course, being the founder and mainstay of King Crimson and also known for off-the-beaten-path collaborations with the likes of Brian Eno, David Byrne, Peter Gabriel, and so forth. So just a very different type of guitar hero than, say, an Ingve Malmsteen or some of the other names we've mentioned but one of the most important voices in electric guitar. So I mean it. I'm not saying it like, oh, how interesting. You know, he opened the shows, the very first tour we did, um, he was opening the shows unannounced before the show actually started. At his request, he wanted to just be on stage uh, doing his soundscapes while people were filling in finding their seats <laughs> that's didn't, so want to be announced, didn't want any lights on them or anything like that and then he would just you know hide away scurry off before the the show started and then uh, eventually we did uh, a european g3 steve i uh, and and myself uh, along with robert that was really uh that was really something you know playing those those particular songs yeah um, just pure art yeah <laughs> We lost your video. Where'd you go? Me? Yeah, you're gone. <laughs> uh, I still see me. Does everybody, okay. does everybody I, else see me? I see you. I still have you. Okay. And it's me again. I am choosing to leave that in. Somehow it feels very fitting that that happened, just as we're discussing Robert Fripp. All right. I assure you I'm still here. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned the Aldemio uh, Trio acoustic, acoustic album. Um, the I had Eric on this podcast. I was telling him the first time I saw him live was uh, warming up for Jeff Berlin and Scott Henderson at a tiny club. Of course, you know this club, Joe, the Keystone Berkeley. Yes, yeah, yeah. And it was pre-Avia Musicom, pre-Cliffs of Dover. And uh, Eric uh, did the whole set acoustic. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And it worked. And it was great. Um, so I know acoustics, a big part of Eric Johnson, but Joe, do you own an acoustic? <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen you play an acoustic. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, acoustic guitars have figured into my albums. Um, we did an acoustic, uh, little segment on the extremist tour. Uh, but I suppose they're not, it's not like me sitting there you know, playing a Michael Hedges piece or or strumming and singing a song or something like that. So people don't really associate with it. But I could, you know, I don't want to bore you with the list of songs on my catalog that have it exists. Songs. Yeah. Yeah. But it's pretty obvious that Flying in a Blue Dream, the rhythm guitars are acoustics. And right. Right. That makes sense. Um, uh, Andalusia, the acoustics, uh, int long intro. Uh, anyway, um, um, I do own uh, a lot of acoustics, as a matter of fact, and uh, I just recorded something on a nylon uh, for you, Steve. You have—I don't think you got it yet. <laughs> oh, you got it. Okay, so yeah. Oh, no, uh, no. Okay. Yes. Is it going to be uh, Steve Vai acoustic as well? Well, I actually uh, during lockdown I started to record a solo acoustic vocal record. Oh, cool. It started out because when we were in lockdown, uh, you know, every, a lot of artists wanted to supply things to the the fans who were also in lockdown. And I just decided to impromptu do a solo 
vocal acoustic version of a song called The Moon. And, and you're on lead vocals. Which yeah. is very, Matt, it was the first time ever, you know, I did anything like that. But I, I like doing it. And through the years, I've captured little snippets of song ideas that I thought would be appropriate for one day doing a, something like that. And that day came and I basically recorded, I got about 14 songs with the rhythm guitar, the acoustic, and there's nothing virtu virtuoso about it. I'm really, at best, a you know acoustic strummer. And uh, yeah, I got a couple of the vocals on it, but I've been touring so much, it's still sitting on the shelf. And I have some other recording projects that uh, are taking priority. So, but yeah, I'm not, uh, I mean, when I watch Eric do his acoustic set, I've seen, seen that several times. I mean, it's real, there's a real craftsman on, on the instrument. It's beautiful. Every note, every note sings like a, its own little body, you know, and, uh, that's, that's very different than what I do on acoustic, which is basically strum the notes. I want to hear it. The world wants to, to hear it. So. Uh, yeah, everybody's got a little pandemic pet project. Eric, when you when you were on, we were talking about your most recent recording, and it, right, it was these unfinished ideas that you dug out during the pandemic because you weren't sure what else to do, and it ended up being this yeah, not really a double yeah. record, but like two separate records sold together. Right? Yeah, yeah, it was a good good experience for me because you know, like it was a kind of a lockdown thing. And, and so I just had this stuff that I was pulling out of the closet and, and it really, it was a good, it's like a time release thing for me because I realized, you know, when something's really not quite right, it can still be okay. And if you make a mistake, it can be okay. And a lot of stuff came off a of cassette tape, you know, and it kind of equilibrated my whole kind of tension about, Oh, we got to do this 40 times and it's got to be perfect. And I, I've just kind of like, kind of got a little bored with that and so it was kind of a it was it was a beginning of a healing experience for me to kind of let go a little bit and realize you know forget all that and just look for something that that speaks emotively and and ha and you think it has magic you know and so it, it it was a learning experience for me to look at music different and um i ended up using stuff it's interesting i i, I used some stuff that came up a cassette that in and of itself it sounded pretty atrocious but when you put, you put like drums and bass or back, or you, you like put other stuff with it. And all of a sudden, the, 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 the stuff that you thought, well, that's not very good, actually counterbalanced in a way to where, wow, I wouldn't really want to make that any better because there's a depth of field of that. You know what I mean? Kind of like the, 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 it, it, that was a really, uh, I, it was an epiphany for me, really. I was like, wow, look at this. This doesn't sound very good on its own, but when you put, when you juxtapose it with other stuff and overdub to it, and I thought, so if that's the case, then there's a lot of beauty maybe that just happens without you getting in the way and starting to get too heady about it and try to redo it, you know, which is something I'm, I'm trying to unlearn, really. That's a big change, right? Yeah, and it's hard. It's hard to learn because it's like you got to take response. I have to take responsibility for a lot of years of maybe going overboard, you know. But but that's how you learn, you know. It's better, you know. I could I could I could go well. I'm bummed because it's you know close to the eleventh hour when I'm learning. But hey, it's a lot better than not learning, you know. Yeah, you know, respectfully, all you guys have reputations as perfectionists, at least. Uh, 
yeah, with with your early, earlier material. But Eric, that sounds like a real growth moment. Well, yeah, but these guys are pretty consistent. I've seen them them live. They pretty much nail it every night. It sounds to me. You know, as I'm all over the. <laughs> it's like. Uh, YouTube. Oh, him I think they would be disagree. <laughs> YouTube was a bummer because I mean, there's YouTube. You, you know, it's like on a good night. Yeah, it's okay. But then all this stuff's like, wow. <laughs> you know, that's. I wish I could. Not. You know what I mean? It's like you catch any given night of a YouTube thing, and it's you, you, it it behooves you to be more consistent, I guess, because <laughs> I'm all over the map. You know, can't even try to remember where the song goes. <laughs> well, it's interesting because G three started pre YouTube. You know, it yeah. was before it was that still, era. It was right? still really innocent where every night when we played, we really were playing for the people that were there. You know what I mean? And we were playing for each other, just having fun, letting each of us push each other, you know, to be to be better, to try to play something different because we just hurt each other the night before. <laughs> so if you played the same thing, it was like, you know, you'd feel it from the other players. So we were just live all the time. And none of us were thinking about recording uh, until, you know, we had to do uh, the album. Uh, that is a, that's a, you know, today it's, it's has an impact. It's different, right? Yeah. It what, is, it, what effect does it have? I think it just closes down a certain amount of risk taking. Um, I think the only thing that is positive about, the trend, this uh, this trend, is that the younger generations will get used to it because it's here, it's reality, and uh, they they will something else will come of it that maybe is not so apparent for someone like myself who, who you know who took the stage before there was uh, an internet and and YouTube and everything else like that. So I I, I do think that it, it always gets better. Uh, as as we can see, guitar players are just phenomenal today. What they're doing technically, uh, and not every aspect of what we did when we started out will survive as being relevant to the audience. But the audience will dictate where performance goes. I think. I think there's always going to be people playing the music that they like at home, but what they do on stage will kind of be dictated by the audience. You know. Yeah. Uh, and so. We just can't, we, we can't really anticipate what that might be. You really can't. And if you think you can, you're an idiot. <laughs> really, That's really basically it. Anytime you think you figured it out, you, you're wrong. You know, so. Yeah. Well, it's good and bad because it's, you know, it's a great way to promote an upcoming tour. Yeah. But yeah, of course it uh, suddenly everybody's a judge now and, you know, yeah. it's, you know, it's like one of those things that's like, um, it's like a piece of gear. It really is innocent uh, on its own. The way that it gets used, of course, you know, like distortion or wah-wah pedal or something like that. It's Some people make those things look bad and some people you know, make them look and sound absolutely amazing. The internet revolution is going through that. It's just more complicated, I think. It's more complex, the good and the bad parts about it. But it's really, it's the audience that decides what they're going to focus on from the technology. It's not the technology's fault that you, that there's a phone that can capture, you know, me playing a mistake and have it, you know, on, on everyone's phone around the world in less than 
an hour <laughs> or something like that, or stream it live. Um, that it's like, why the question is, why would somebody do that? That's it's, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with the phone. Phone's great. The internet's great. It's all great. It's just like, why would you do that? That is a, a disturbing trend. Well, you cameras know? weren't even allowed in concerts. Right. I remember that. Yeah. Let alone video cameras. Yeah. Well, that was an economic thing though. I mean, I, I don't think people truly can remember that anymore, but for, I can remember even during my short period of uh, gaining success, having pressure from a label to make a film uh, that was going to cost a quarter of a million minimum that might put you in debt like forever, like just you'd never get out of debt, you know what I mean? Just to make this one video. So you knew, and you know, they'd be talking to you about it for a couple of months before it gets filmed. Meanwhile, you see people out there filming you and you realize, well, if people are filming me now, it's going to totally kill this project where I'm going to go into debt to, to make this film. And, and so you'd have to tell those people to stop, please, because of this thing I'm doing. But it, it's, it wasn't cool to come out and say that. Like, I'll never make any money, uh, you know, with this film if you film me now. Right, right. There's no, there's no way to look good explaining that to the audience. But we can do it now in retrospect and say it was an economic thing. It wasn't an ego thing. It wasn't like, my hair doesn't look good tonight. Please don't take a picture of me or something. Sure. It was just like, I can't afford to have you film me tonight because it'll just destroy all these other plans. I look back at it now, it's like, how silly. Because um, in a way, like, I wish I had a thousand films of me playing i don't care about my hair anymore <laughs> or if i made a couple of mistakes playing flying in a blue dream or whatever i say like, i don't care about that anymore but at the time it was important because the competition uh to to get a good gig to get that tv show appearance or something had to do with how you came off how you know, uh, and so yeah it's it's important in the beginning but now it seems kind of silly. <laughs> yeah. If you can remember those days of no cameras being allowed, which, you know, I, I can. Yeah. The thought of everybody, you know, having a camera and just anybody being able to see the show, it, it, it is a little bizarre. I, I do wish I had video of certain shows. I would have videoed uh, Eric opening for Jeff Berlin. Yeah, I remember even but, back yeah. like uh, uh, when I was yeah. touring with Zappa in the 80s, the idea of somebody having a, uh, a a video camera in the audience was just crazy. And then all through like uh, those early Dave Roth days, they, they would actively send people out into the audience to look for people with cameras even, you know, more or less video, because then, you know, by that time it was like these things. And this, yeah, you can't and, have a photograph taken. Yeah, in yeah. hindsight, it, it kind of yeah. is a bit of a shame. I know that it, Joe's absolutely correct about the economic reasons. That was the mindset then. Don't film because then what what happens when we release our video? That's not and the quality and all this. But in hindsight, when I I, I really feel that like that uh, those Zappa shows or those Roth shows, there was some you know uh, there was some magic in that. As is any band when they're young and they're you know, and there's nothing out there. I mean, I think there's a couple of sh like Dave Roth shows with where somebody brought one of those things in and they got away with it. Uh, 
but it's not like today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Eric, uh, when the G3 tour happens, are you going to be doing mostly stuff from the new recording, the current recording, the double album or uh, some of the classics? No? no, I think I'm just going to try to do a smattering of different stuff. I think just over the years. Yeah, you know, I was putting the set together and I kind of kept gravitating towards maybe songs I haven't played for a while, but off some earlier records, but maybe like re re uh, work them to be a little different. Yeah. So in addition to the G3, there is also the Steve and Joe show. <laughs> now, now is, is, can you tell us how is that going to differ from the G3 other than it's, it's the G2? Is it different? <laughs> it's a G2. We'll each have a little bit longer set. <laughs> yeah, we're and we're we're working on some new music to release in conjunction with the tour. Um, that's what when I was talking about the uh, the nylon acoustic. acoustic. Thing, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, it's really you know it's really funny because we have toured a lot together in lots of different ways, and we've appeared on stage together in different ways, different times. And, um, but we've never actually done this where we go out on a tour specifically and we have new music that we've written specifically, uh, for the tour. So, um, yeah, lots of really cool things to look forward to, um, yeah. that have got yeah. me. <laughs> well, Joe, you've got a crazy year coming up. So we were just talking about that before these guys logged on. So in addition to Steve and Joe, and in addition to the G3, you've got the, uh, tour with Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony. Yeah. And I guess, is that being done at, as a tribute to uh, Edward? No, 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 no. Uh, that, that, uh, that crazy idea, uh, you know, from the brain of Sammy Hagar uh, was really about doing um, a career retrospective for Sammy. And he really wanted to try to figure out a way to, um, respectfully visit his legacy uh, with Van Halen, but also uh, his incredible solo career as a performer and a writer. And Montrose. Uh, Montrose, chicken foot stuff. Um, And he was looking for something unique. Uh, And uh, uh, so when he called me, it's funny, I, I had, the conversation was, we're not, this isn't a tribute tour, right? Because I'd already been through that with Alex and Dave and, I was kind of relieved when it was falling apart quite naturally. Um, Cause I, I, I was not, re- I never thought I was really the right guy to do that, but there I was, you know? So <laughs> my enthusiasm sort of took over uh, in accepting that challenge. Uh, but this made more sense to me because uh, we were going to be really reflecting the overall career and it wasn't, it wasn't just about Eddie, you know, but still, there, there's a good, I don't know, 15 songs that are incredibly hard for me to play that I'm going to be working on in the dressing room, Steve. So if you if you happen to be walking <laughs> by and you go, hey, that's Van Halen, kind of. It's be- wrong. Knock <laughs> 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 on the door and say, hey, you know, that's a C-sharp joke. That's a whole <laughs> joke. I doubt I'll be correcting you. <laughs> but the crazy thing is that uh, this is totally. This is such guitar nerd stuff, but uh, the equipment, you know, thing is really challenging for me because I play tens at uh, E flat, 
The G3 jam is going to be at 440. So I'll probably have nine and a half or nines on some 440 guitars. The Hagar tour is D standard tuning. Wow. And I'm still wow. trying to figure out what gauge play. Like I, I, I the other week uh, for those radio shows, I, I did a set of 11s. It was a big mistake. I mean, it, it helped with the tuning, but getting around the guitar was almost impossible. I didn't realize it. I was halfway through the show. And and so I'll probably try ten and a halfs, tens or something. But having those three or four guitar setups and going through the day is just driving me insane. I just I wish it was just one guitar with one set of strings, you know, and one tuning. Uh it's I never thought it would bother me so much. It doesn't in the studio, but when you're performing live, having having that you know, that little bit of the rug pulled out from underneath you is disconcerting. Yeah. Especially with vibrato and intonation. It's really odd. And Yeah. I'm glad I'm not the only one. I, I like tens on Fender type guitars, straps and telecasters, but I like 11s on like Les Paul shapes. Uh, I find the 11s dark. That's what I find. Unless you're at 440. Yeah. Only on certain guitars. It's, it's strange. And uh, tuned down, especially, I you know tuned down to four thirty. I think elevens feel good, but only on the Les Paul shape. I don't think I've ever seen any of you guys play Les Pauls. It's kind of interesting because you know everybody talks about fifty nine Les Pauls these days. You know the whole <laughs> Joe Bonamassa slash thing. I did a couple of shows for for Les Paul for his birthday party. I think there's a his speech. YouTube, there's a good YouTube clip of me playing a, a Les Paul, a 58 Les Paul special, Satch Boogie. That was really hard, actually. Oh, is it hard? Yeah. That's because Les Pauls go out of tune, like, instantly. You play that kind of aggressive kind of style of guitar playing. I played a great one. I played Billy Gibbons. As I happened to be going through Nashville and vis visiting uh, Cesar at, at Gibson at the same time he was there, with, and he brought in Pearly Gates, Nice. <laughs> but he, he, he uses eights. Yeah. No, not even eights. Sevens. Yeah, sevens. <laughs> sevens. Wow. He's gone down. I think they made sevens for him. Yeah. Wow. And it still sounds like a ton of bricks. It still sounds like him, yeah. which is amazing. Oh, do you remember that time that uh, he got on stage with us? That was in Houston. Yeah. That was in Houston. And Joe and I were standing there playing. And this happened several times, once with Brian May. But I remember with Billy Gibbons, and, and he just played like three notes. And Joe and I just looked at each other and went, what was – they sounded like they had their own zip code, you know? <laughs> Amazing. Those were sevens? Oh, my God. And Eric, you've known him a long time, right? The, the Texas scene. A little, a little bit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Has, has he always used strings that thin, do you know? Or is that the – I don't think so. I don't think – I think it's in the last few years, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Are you using the same uh, gauges you've always used? I'm using sixes, actually. <laughs> I had a, no, just I'm going to start using fives. No. <laughs> well, Billy used seven, so I thought we wanted to. Okay. Moving on to 17. <laughs> no, I just used 10 through 46, just stock kind of thing. It's a good gauge. What about you, Steve? Well, it varies based on tuning. Uh, usually I'm a nine through uh 42 uh although although that i do some songs in drop c and those are wow. 
Those are elevens, I think. Yeah, I think thicker strings for lower tunings makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The scale length is what does it in. You know, it's like you really. I think once you get past maybe C sharp, the regular uh, Fender scale length still just isn't long enough. Things, you know, so the harmonics are different. The harmonics of each string don't support each other as well. That's why when when you hear <clears throat> like, you know, nines at 440, it's just kind of beautiful sounding. Every, almost every chord works. And you yeah. tune a little bit more sharp, you go higher, it just gets better and better. You know, that makes so sense. if you play a song with a capo at the fifth fret and you go, oh, my God, this guitar sounds amazing. It's just all sparkly. Yeah. Uh, and so when you go the opposite way, it's, you know, it may match your mood, but it's actually less. It's kind of dark, you know. Yeah. I've, I've, Not as I've, like you know, tre treble control dark. It's, there's a uh, harmonic. There's yeah. Some, yeah, there's something about it that's dark. And that's that makes what sense. I, that makes yeah. sense. Uh, you know, Joe and Steve, you guys are kind of known for modern gear, right, Joe, with the Sustaniac. Mm -hmm. Steve, I remember you introducing the uh, Harmonizer. Uh, they was the H3000 back in the day. And just always this postmodern gear. Um, and Eric, as we were doing the, the test to have this, conversation eric reminded me of the echoplex and you said you're still using it do you guys remember the echoplex <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's pretty ridiculous to, but, to still but they haven't one, but been able to duplicate yeah. it there is no digital yeah i didn't, didn't use it for a few years and then about a year ago i um I was having trouble with my rig, and I said, oh, let's see what this sounds like. And I put it back in line with, God, this sounds great. So I just started using it again. I'll just use it till it breaks, I guess, which will probably be in, in another hour or two. Any day now, yeah, because <laughs> yeah. of that tape. Any moment. Yeah, it's pretty. But they do sound great. They The, the preamp in them sounds really good. Yeah. Well, you're, you, you mostly use vintage gear, right? Uh, Pre-CBS strats, echoplexes. Well, I, I have a I have a uh, new strats that I that I work with. Fender yeah, your on signature strat. But is there like uh, a yeah. modern piece of gear that doesn't fit in with your more? Uh, I use a uh, like uh, new two rock amplifiers. I use those. Uh -huh. Yeah, and um, yeah, mostly that, and then the new Fender Fender guitars. Yeah, nice. Uh, Joe and Steve, is there a vintage piece of gear or something that? Like doesn't fit in with your postmodern stuff that you're known for. These <laughs> good answer. Nineteen That's right. This yes, all this piece of gear I own. <laughs> and just to give you a visual, since you can't see it on the audio, Joe is holding up both hands and waving them around and saying, "This the oldest piece of gear I own." That's what it all comes down to. Yeah. yeah. I don't think uh, I, live, I think all my stuff uh, is is modern. I don't think I have anything really old. In the studio, I, I mean, I still have the, the 58 Esquire that I really love, um, yeah. 48, uh, 0021, I really love these things. Like they're just on all the records doing something. Um, but yeah, I, I love playing the the newer stuff because it solves a lot of the issues that the old stuff didn't have. And, and I, I don't, uh, I'm not trying to recreate anything. 
actually. I'm just trying to move forward. Um, do you, I don't know if you remember seeing me in the squares. I used to use two echoplexes yes. and two half stacks. It was a crazy idea. W- one gray, gray, green echoplex and one black one. So it's a, I guess it's a two and a three. Is that what they're called? What are they I called? never saw a gray, green one. Wow. Yeah, that, that one sounded great. I still have that one. It still works. We use cool. it on almost once in a while. Um, I think um, a couple of, uh, I'm looking around and I think I've got a 53 Fender Deluxe. I think that might be the oldest amp I have. Oh, and nice. It, it does wind up doing something mm-hmm. on every album. You just never know. Um, but that that would scare me to death if I had to walk on stage with like a 58 Tele and, and, and an old Deluxe like that. I have no <laughs> idea what I would play. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gauntlet. <laughs> It, it is, it's, but it's good, you know. I think, for me anyway, because I grew up playing a Telecaster for many years. You remember the Tele I had, Steve, the '68? Oh yeah, absolutely. I remember you you offered to sell it to me when you were getting a new guitar. Yeah, it's 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 something that I always go back to, and it feels normal to me. But it is the thing that teaches me whether or not I'm I'm any good on any given day. Like, cause you really right. have to make it, you make yourself sound good on a Telecaster. It does not offer you anything, no, no boost. <laughs> yeah. I noticed Tele players that really have a control on it, that it's, it, that's their comfort zone, you know, because similarly, if I had to just pick up a Tele and, uh, you know, directly into a Fender or something, it's, it's not, it's not my neighborhood. Uh, but I, I have a, you know, a romantic attachment to the idea of the analog foundation, you know, like having a, a analog sounds, you know, cables, keeping the signal straight. But I've always, and, and you know, the, the uh, vintage guitars, there's a romantic attraction. But my, as I started to develop my style, I never, um, none of those guitars really seem to feel comfortable like if i play a les paul it it, it's it's quasi alien you know a little more comfortable on a strap but if you if you think of the gem it it you know everything about it is is kind of different when you get into the nuances everything that the the switches the neck the frets the um the electronics the pickups uh and i i guess as my style developed the, the idiosyncr- uh, idiosyncratic ways uh, made their way into the guitar design. So it was kind of impossible to stay in that uh, analog realm, especially when, and I love all the, you know, like the echoplexes and, you know, the analog feel. But then when multi-effects processors came along, it, it was just too tempting to have it all, you know? And they took, they, once you put your signal through them, they definitely, in the beginning, there was a compromise because the converters and things that were made at that time were new and they, they, they definitely raped the romantic quality right out of the analog gear, you know. <laughs> but then eventually uh, the converters got better, something like Pro Tools, if I go back and listen to original recordings with those uh, analog to digital converters, it's re- it's really quite uh, stunning to hear how the the soul 
of the sound had changed so much. But as time went on, you, you get used to the convenience. You get used to the, some people like myself, you know, and, and Joe, I know that constantly playing with uh, experimenting. He was doing that when we were kids, you know, uh, always you go in Joe's room and there's some kind of cool box on the floor, you know, and that that's new and interesting. And it's like, what is that? You know, it's making all these sounds. That's what I imagine Joe's room to be like. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so great. It was teenage Joe, right? Posters, it was like a laboratory. <laughs> and a stack of records and he'd say, okay, this week you can take this one home. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the, the temptation to navigate into the digital was just too delicious, you know, because it's just the, the convenience. And I'm happy to feel that these days the quality has gotten so much better, but yeah, you know, the, the, uh, the, the when you, when you hear Eric's tone, there's such a purity to the analog uh, soul. So that's, you know, uh, another another uh, thing that you get at a, this G3 concert, variety. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it covers so many bases. Yeah. I'll just say, I know uh, we're at an hour. I was going to start wrapping down. If you guys have a few more minutes. Um, I've, I just got one of these, uh, the Quad Cortex. Oh, cool. And... I feel like, yeah, they, they've they really started to get it right as far as the um, the, the multi-effects amp modelers. Um, I don't think there's a way you could substitute Eric Johnson's tone. I mean, that's just... But depending on the, the context, these things work really well. I know um, Metallica's using fractals. Uh, the Edge just came out as, as a fractal user. <laughs> He just came out. I like that. He came out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I have one of those. I have one of those neurals. You do? Yeah. Oh, okay. So like somebody like you, I, that surprises me. What do you think of it? Well, I've, yeah, I've been working on capturing the sounds. They're pretty, they're pretty, like you say, I think it's getting better all the time. I've also been experimenting with the new Fender one. Fender came out with one. Right. The Tone Master. That looks really interesting. Yeah. And they have so much options. Yeah, I, I can tell you just technically the big difference is that when you play into an amp, almost any amp, behind me there's Marshalls and the EVHs. I, you can't see a bunch of Fender combos over here. Uh, when you play on the G and the B string and you go higher, it things happen. Yeah. Not necessarily things you want, but big, there's transient response. It's just totally out of control, beautiful analog. Everything that you put into it is coming out in real time. And all the modeling things, again, fantastic leap into the future and convenience for musicians. But if you just put any one of those right next to you, your, your champ or your JVM and you switch back and forth, you'll go, oh my God, there's no comparison because this there's, there's a life that is completely missing from this model and you, and if they can't they can't possibly capture it to make the performer sitting like in this room going a b a b back and forth feel like it's anywhere near the same however if it's on a recording it really doesn't matter because a recording already has a limited 
dynamic range. And that's really kind of like what we're talking about. Yeah. The experience for the performer has to do with the dynamic range. Is, is the amplifier reflecting all of my dynamics, everything that's me? Is it, is it giving it to the audience? I think uh, there's a couple factors too. If, if you're playing on stage with a band, you know, the sound of the other instruments, it takes up some of the space. Yes. Yeah. Right. So you're not going to notice it as much as you will if you're at, in your, you're at home and you plug into your deluxe. I have a 66 deluxe here. Nice. And I'll, I'll do the same thing. Like uh, you were saying about just the telecaster straight in, just to for training, just to <laughs> sound good on that before any effects or any combination. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, but there's nothing. There's nothing like it. But I also I don't want to take my '66 Deluxe on the road. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of other amps I don't want to take on the road. And then there's also festival situations where uh, you're you fly in and out, and it's hard to fl to bring an amp. So you can bring this little device. That when it, you know when it's blended in with a band, it sounds good enough. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's worthwhile. When we did the last G4, so one final interruption. I think most of you know what the G4 is, but just in case, the G4 experience is Joe's guitar camp. It happens every couple years or so. I was honored to take part in the most recent one, as well as one other. So it is not a concert with four guitar players like the G3. In fact, this last one was a full blowout with some incredible names. So it is a musical education event, the G4 experience. I watched a lot of shows by the different performers uh, in sort of like the back of, of the room to see if I could tell that there was modeling going on or not modeling. And I realized that I could not at all. It, oh, interesting. As you said, once it's mixed in with the instruments and the and the sounds are complementing each other, suddenly I'm just a fan enjoying the music and liking the guitar playing. It's really about the performer, isn't it? It's like yes, yes, and that 100%. would be for for anything. Like if you step on a Wawa pedal, is is that your favorite Wawa? Is that making you inspired? And because the audience is going to pick up on your inspiration and and how you play, they they couldn't tell the difference between different eras of Vox Wawa's, you know, they just, they just that's right. you to do something really cool. So I think that's also a really big part of it is when you plug into these modelers, are you being inspired enough to turn on the audience? Um, that's, that's what matters. Yes. yes. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, thanks for engaging me on that. Cause I actually wrote a, a piece, an essay on Substack. Maybe I'll, I'll send it over. Oh, I read that. That was great. That was really great. Oh, you read it. Oh, yes, cool. Yeah. And the, it got a lot of, there's some, a lot of debate. Yeah. You know, there's some purists out there, you know, it's gotta be tubes, man, you know, tubes or nothing. <laughs> but uh, like we're saying, you know, there's a lot of nuance and it, it, I think your point, it really depends on the performer more than anything else. Yeah. So um, before we wrap up, uh, any any other thoughts? Like uh, Steve, I know you have a, a Vi Academy coming up. I know I know I've aged out of it. Uh, it's all <laughs> new generation guys, but and girls. Yes, uh, we was a good, great. I think I think it's an amazing lineup. A few friends of mine there. Yeah, yeah. I just felt that um, we've we've seen various generations. I mean, at this point, we've probably seen two or three 
guitar generations come. And this new generation is, uh, you know, they've got uh, something going on that's very different. And, I, uh, you know, we can't help but I can't help but to see them. And I thought, well, I like to do themed uh, academies, you know, and I thought this maybe it would be interesting to try to get a whole bunch of these new kinds of players, this young crop, and uh, get them together. And, uh, you know, luckily for me, they all uh, agreed. And it's fantastic. I watch these videos from these uh, folks, and it's just fascinating to see the evolution of technique. I mean, I don't know, maybe my next camp, it'll be all 70s guitar players, you know? <laughs> but uh, I enjoy doing them, and we have the one coming up, uh, number seven, in Florida. Uh, I, I leave January 1st. It's like the 2nd through the 5th. There's still a few tickets available. All right. But they're always fun. I just always like those environments, and you get to really see people interacting. And they're like, um, you know, giant glorified G. 25s or something <laughs> but that, the, the one thing i would like to add is uh, uh it is really it's really nice at this time to be able to do this g3 i mean and to have been a part of the uh, first iteration of it and you know kudos to joe for pulling it together and for inviting us and and for maintaining yeah, it yeah, and, and maintaining it and, and and supporting it for thirty years was that right? It's like thirty uh, years. mid nineties, right? Yeah, going on thirty years. Yeah, yeah, and, and constantly bringing the, creating a brand that you know that if you're going to spend that evening in that venue, whoever's on that stage, you're just going to be getting some a, a celebration of the guitar in the way that we uh, enjoy it. And the diversity that Joe's, Joe has brought uh, to to the guitar community with the G3 thing is uh, really special, really special. So I just want to thank Joe and Eric and all, everybody that is going to be participating and contributing. It's really a wonderful event. It's nice to be a part of. Yeah. And we're going to go out there and blow up the bridge. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'll just add as a fan and player and somebody so inspired by what you guys do it's been great to see you guys continuing and just developing and you know the music you're putting out now is it's exciting it's as exciting as it was back in the day and not you know i don't want to name names but that wasn't always the, the case but it's been great to have guitar heroes like you guys that were like you know giants of guitar at this certain era but you've kept it going and it's still exciting. Everybody looks healthy. Please keep that. <laughs> Please stay healthy. <laughs> Especially you, Joe, you've got like three massive tours coming up. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of practicing to do. I know. I know. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. To be able to play music every night for people, I mean, that is, that's just crazy. It's just, I can't believe it. That's all we wanted to do, Steve, right? When we were kids. Yeah, just that was, that was the dream. And you know, at, at, at this uh, point, uh, maybe you guys uh, feel the same way. Sometimes, it, you know, later in the career, you look, you, you look back and you go, you know what, Wait, this is, this is really great. 
am I embracing this fully? You know, am I making the very most of this psychologically or, or am I worrying too much about things? And, um, boy, oh boy, it, it like this last tour I just got off of, uh, you, you want to savor every moment more. I know that's the way I feel more and more at this point, this age, you, you really, I savor it more. So I'm so, uh, so, so happy we're going to be able to do that again. And, and also the, one of the things that was always a fantasy, you know, and always was asked was, uh, you know, when are you and Joe going to go out and do it? You know, and now, now, <laughs> now I, I have the set list on the wall over here. So I just have to figure out, uh, yeah, when, which set to practice first when I wake up in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what is happening first? What's the first tour that's coming up? Is it uh, you guys or is it G3? It's G3, yeah. What, what's the opening date? Oh, anybody have those dates around anybody them? Uh, I think it's the 20, 23rd, 23rd maybe, in Tucson. 21st, I think. Yeah. Oh, no, that's when the bus yeah. picks me up. <laughs> uh, 23rd, 23rd, yes. We do have that here. Okay, I was going to try to dial that up, but I'm late. Okay, here we go. So it's coming I should right able, up. I should be able to rattle these off and and and. Okay, there I we go. Yeah, until the night before. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are right. Twenty third. Send that man a gift. Yeah, twenty third of January. Uh, of January into February, isn't it? Isn't it February? Yeah. No, it's no, it's <laughs> 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 No, no, no. You guys need to uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, who memorizes these things? I know people always ask me, what hotel are you staying at when you get yeah. to Spokane? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. You go where you're told. Yeah. I, I should point out, you know, uh ZZ's gonna be with us on this tour. Um, he's gonna play a bit. I think he's he said, right? He's never shared the stage with you. No, I mean yeah. He did when he was a really young kid, but he's totally forgotten that. And yeah, <laughs> yeah he's asking all of us for advice too. And that's good <laughs> as part of the documentary. So and then we're filming the last two shows in Los Angeles, February 9th and 10th at the Orpheum. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's if you want to be part of the the film, uh, part of because we're doing a live album as well. I'm not sure which performance that's going to be taken from. But um, yeah, come and scream and yell and and uh, wear something crazy and uh, get in the film, get on the live album, and uh, enjoy this this crazy G three uh, you know tour we're doing. I'm so excited! So now exciting! Hey, I can't wait like, to see it, and uh, I'm just thanks. hugely honored to have, have you guys on my podcast here. And uh, thank you so much. And we really covered a lot of ground. I think. Uh, I'm going to enjoy listening back to this. And I, I can't wait to see you guys out there. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you so much, Alex. You're doing great stuff. Thanks a lot. You go. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Bye, guys. See you guys. Bye, Steve. All right. All right. Good see to see you. Guys. See you guys out there. Have a great tour and happy new year. Y'all too. Happy new year. Wow. Wasn't that amazing? I have to say, I think that went really well. It felt like hanging out at a hotel bar and just talking freely and uh, getting to know the personalities behind the guitar heroes. 
Um, besides that, they are great minds, right? All these guys are philosophical, funny, great to talk to. So thank you, Joe, Steve, and Eric. Moods and Modes is hosted and produced by yours truly, Alex Skolnick. Our executive producer is Kirsten Cluthy. Final mixes by Tom Sullivan. Original music by Alex Skolnick. Here joined by Matt Zabrowski on the drums and Nathan Peck on the bass. Artwork by Mark Down and distribution by Osiris Media. Once again, the G3 Reunion Tour starts January 23rd and information can be found at g3tour.com. And a special thank you to great friend of the pod, Melissa Dragich, who made all this possible. Thank you, Melissa. I set it up front. I'll say it one more time. What a way to kick off the year. I believe this will go down as one of my favorite episodes, along with our visit from Pat Matheny and our visit from Peter Framden. As always, we greatly appreciate you listening. And don't forget to hit subscribe or follow if you haven't. Ratings and reviews are also appreciated. And uh, it's going to be a crazy year this year. But we have each other. We have music. So until then, have a great 2024. Take care. Be safe. See you on the next episode. Hey, music fans, we wanted to let you know about Music on the Mountain, a show that will feature Anders Osborne, Dogs in a Pile, and Saints and Liars. This show will be directly after the Divided Sky Foundation's fun run at 2 p.m. on Saturday, May 18th at the base of Akimo Mountain in Ludlow, Vermont. The show is presented by The Phoenix, a national nonprofit organization offering support to those in recovery and anyone impacted by substance use to celebrate recovery. If you're running in the Divided Sky Foundation's fund run, you'll be automatically registered for the show. It's a family-friendly event, and all proceeds from ticket sales and other donations benefit the Divided Sky Foundation. Visit Music on the Mountain, that's musiconthemtn.com for more info and to get tickets. That's musiconthemtn.com. Hope you enjoy.